0: Mark says this. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, mother of James, uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James and Salami, went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? On the way there, They were asking this, but as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead." Look, yeah, this is where they laid his body. Now, go and tell his disciples, including Peter. This is God's word, and this is where we start. I want to start, uh, before I, we get into this passage, by, by paving the way with a question. Now, have you ever had one of those days where things didn't turn out quite the way that you expected them to? <laughs> I'm getting a lot of yeses. Maybe I should keep going with that question. Have you ever had a week a week that didn't turn out quite the way that you're expected. Some of you are like, keep going, man. My whole life has turned out unexpected. I think we all have some of those moments. I just want to share one uh, mild story, mainly because I want to start off by making you laugh today. Uh, several years ago when I first married my wife Brianna, we, t- uh, we spent our one year anniversary, I think it was our one year anniversary, uh, by going to New York City. And when we went there, we really wanted, we were there for the weekend, we really wanted to go to this church. The church was called Brooklyn Tabernacle, and we had heard stories about it, how it started as a church of like seven people in this poor part of town, and how they prayed and prayer changed things. And they started talking about how as the church grew, uh, they started to assemble this choir called the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And I wanted more than anything to visit this church. It was like on my, my top 10 to-do list. And so Brianna and I are like, okay, we're going to New York City, and we're going to Brooklyn Tabernacle, and I can't wait to see the choir. So we show up that day. It was uh, I think it was January 3rd, uh, and we go to church for the early service, and the room is packed. It's so packed we have to sit Uh, in the mezzanine floor, 3,000 people in this old auditorium, and we stand up, and we begin to worship, and the choir is there, and it's only a fraction of the normal choir, so about 150 people on that stage, and we start singing these worship songs, and it is just electrifying in there. I've never experienced anything like it before, and after about two songs, the pastor gets up, and he says, all right, everybody, uh, everybody take a seat now. Uh, it's New Year's. Is anyone in here that's visiting for the first time, please stand up? I'm glad I didn't do that to you today. <laughs> and so about 100 of us stand up, including Brianna and myself. And then he asks a follow-up question. He says, okay, how many of you here today for the first time have ever sung in a choir before? About half of us sit down, including myself and Brianna, and about 40 are remaining standing. And, uh, uh, and the pastor then says after that, how would you like to sing in the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir? Silence. Everyone thought he was joking. And and he says it again. He's all, "No, I'm serious. Get down here. We're going to sing a few songs together." People start rushing the stage. There's just this buzz in the air. People are excited, and I'm sitting there just like, "Oh my goodness, I wish I had sung in a choir before in my life." And then in that moment, I realized, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I look over at Brianna and she's got a grin on her face and that's all the word I needed. I jumped over the banister, ran down the stairs, ran up the uh, up the stage and sat right in the middle of uh, right in the middle of this giant choir and I turn around, look at thousands of people looking at me and we start to sing and it is just incredible. The power in the building is just just kind of swelling. People've got their hands raised, they're worshiping. They want to be there and the choir is singing it out. And uh, a little backstory, in case you didn't hear this at the beginning, I've never sung in a choir before, but I figure that's probably not that big of a deal. You know, I have experience singing in the shower and, you know, in the car on the way to work, so I figure a choir, how, how hard can it be? So I get up there, and the first song is a song I recognize. It's actually a song we had just sung at our church two weeks prior, so I'm like, awesome, this is great. I'm like, okay, I know the song, let's do it. We start singing, I'm getting into it, I'm getting a little more comfortable, I'm starting to get a little more confident, maybe a little overconfident. And now, at this point, about two minutes in, I'm starting to belt the song, okay? I want, I want the guy on my right and on my left to hear me. I think they would be blessed by what I'm, what I'm singing right now. And so I just belt out a little bit. Now, I don't know when this happened, but at a certain point in the middle of that song, I look over at the guy on my right and I notice that he's moving. Uh, Not like we move here on the West Coast in church, we kind of do this kind of thing. Over there, they were moving to the side, right? I look over to the guy on my left, and he's doing the same thing. The whole choir is moving to the side, to the music, like choirs do. Something I would have figured out had I sung in a choir. It wasn't just the choir, it was the entire church building, 3,000 people, all moving to the side to the song. And they weren't doing the shuffle, they were stomping to the beat, Every time people were singing, the mezzanine floor was shaking. It was incredible. Then I look down at my feet, and I see that they are glued straight to the floor. Jesus might have risen from the dead, but my feet are still in the grave. You understand what I'm saying right now? And I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, I'm not doing it right. To make matters worse, every guy in the choir was wearing a suit and it was a dark muted color. I, on the other hand, was wearing the brightest red plaid button-down shirt you've ever seen. In the aftermath of this song, I would actually ask my wife, Brianna, hey, could you tell that I wasn't moving, looking for some affirmation? And she says, you looked like a pole just holding its ground in the storm. And so in that moment, I'm freaking out. I'm like, no, 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 this is not how it's supposed to go. Okay, i got to move, i got to move. Okay, they're, mov- they're moving to the side. What? This is hard. There's like three steps in here. I think they dip as they move. There's like a dip there. Okay, wait, they're clapping? you got to be kidding me. There's so much coordination. I'm learning how to do this as I'm singing in the choir. Finally, I get it down. I'm a quick learner. And so I'm moving to the, I'm moving to the beat. Uh, and then I, I look over at the guy on my right, who's fast becoming my reference point, and I see that I'm moving in the opposite direction as he is. <laughs> I look like a broken pair of windshield wipers at this point. And so I, I actually stop in the middle of the song to gather myself and say, okay, 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 they're going to the left, okay, I'm going to the left too. And when I get it, when I actually start clapping on beat, moving in rhythm to the rest of the choir, I then realize something else, that my lips stop moving. And in that moment, I, I, I came to a realization about myself, that I cannot sing and move my feet at the same time. And I discover this on the stage of the Grammy Award-winning Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir on their home turf in Brooklyn, New York City. This was not the way I expected the day to go down. Anyone have any experiences like that? I hope not. <laughs> now that story, the unexpected stories like that are are embarrassing. After a certain amount of time separates you from them, they're laughable and they're worth telling over again. They're maybe funny, but sometimes the unexpected uh, is disappointing. Sometimes the unexpected doesn't come in the form of an embarrassment. It comes in the form of a broken family or a broken marriage. Sometimes you wake up to the unexpected, and the unexpected is a career that never got off the ground. Sometimes the unexpected is hopelessness and emptiness and loneliness. And then still, the unexpected gets worse. Sometimes you wake up and you face nothing short of death, tragedy, and misery. It was just this December in the city of Santa Barbara and Ventura, when uh, the biggest fire in the history of California swept through multiple counties, burning hundreds upon hundreds of structures and homes, leaving people homeless, gutting the hillside of plant life and foliage and roots, enabling a loosened topsoil. That fire, the Thomas Fire, was soon followed by a record-breaking onslaught of rain. That rain caused a record-breaking avalanche of mud and debris, sweeping homes off their foundations like they were made out of toothpicks, spraying rocks through the hillside, through people's homes, through the 101, down residential roads, rocks the size of cars, and in some cases, the size of storage containers. And on that day, over 20 people lost their lives. People who woke up one week saying, I live in Santa Barbara, nothing bad happens here. The week later, the unexpected happens. Sometimes the unexpected is embarrassing, sometimes it's laughable, and other times you wake up and you're facing a tomb. I have to imagine that's probably what Mary felt like on this Saturday evening. This was her baby boy. A week prior, she had everything in front of her to live for. She just gave birth to the savior of the world everything was taken care of a week later she's walking on her way to the tomb she buried her own son and she's now on the way to the tomb to treat his dead body sometimes you wake up to something that is completely unexpected and sometimes the unexpected is nothing short of death and how do you deal with death How do we deal with death when it comes? The worst of the unexpected. People have been trying to answer this question for centuries. Mary herself was doing something. She was on her way to the tomb to anoint her son's dead body and to cover it in spices. Now, in the first century, spices had a couple of different functions. One was it was an act of homage. It was kind of similar to what you would do if you put flowers on a grave. It was to honor the dead. But the second function was purely pragmatic. It was to cover the stench of decay. You try to imagine this sweet mother going into the grave of her son, not being able to fix death, not being able to give her son life as she would have, uh, uh, as she would have desired, only able to cover the stench of his death. And for hundreds of years, that's all humanity has ever been able to do. In the days of Jesus, the thought leaders of that day would have been the Greeks, and they couldn't fix death. Their only way to handle death was to say, if you, uh, if you just found your rightful place in the universe, then you'll achieve harmony, and harmony might get you by After the Greeks came the humanists, and the humanists said, no, it's not about finding your rightful place in the universe, it's about understanding how the universe works through algorithms and formulas and a scientific theory. If you can understand how the universe works, you'll find meaning, and through meaning you'll transcend the mundane and the broken of this life. The postmoderns came in after that and said, there's no meaning in the universe, it's all pointless. Just live your life to the fullest. And if you live your life to the fullest, maybe you'll achieve something beyond the here and now. Even those of us who are alive, who aren't facing death, if we're completely honest, perhaps we would say, even in our lives, we're trying to transcend death. The cultural anthropologist by the name of Ernest Becker wrote a book called "A Denial of Death, and he wrote, even the good things that we do are simply a reflex of the terror of death. In other words, he was saying, even the things that we try to achieve is our way of transcending death. In other words, we want to know that there's meaning. We want to know that that there's significance in life. We want to know that there's something more than what we can just feel and, and see and touch and smell. We want to know that this is going to last, that this is worth it. And so we surround ourselves with stuff and our schedules with busyness, and we enter into relationships, and we chase after everything imaginable from money, to career, to friendships, to sex, to drugs, to alcohol, to other forms of self-medication, to thrill-seeking, to hobby-making, hoping that it will satisfy something down in there. My question to you is, does it ever work? Or do we find ourselves like Mary, able to do nothing except to cover over the stench of death? I have a boy named Jude. He's three years old, and he loves to eat. In fact, I'm pretty, pretty convinced God made his whole body just a giant taste bud, because that's how he eats, covers himself with food. And one day he was on the couch, and he, he spilled an entire container, I forget what it was, it was like applesauce or yogurt, something bad, on the couch, and He felt bad. He was like, oh, no, you know, and he tried to fix it. And the way that he tried to fix it was by pushing with his hand the mess into the couch and smearing it around in circles. He's really trying. Uh, But as you know, it didn't fix it. It just made the mess bigger. You ever feel that way? Like no matter how hard you try in life to make yourself happy, to fill that void, it seems like the mess just keeps getting bigger. See, the problem, is, the problem is the things that we often find ourselves running after. Trying to fix that empty void, trying to fix the loneliness, trying to fix the hurt, trying to fix the pain, trying to uh, fill that void of insignificance, trying to find meaning. All of those are real and valid things, but they're merely symptoms of the, the, the primary thing. The Bible tells us in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, that the problem facing humanity is primarily the curse of death. In Genesis 3, actually in the first couple uh, chapters of the Bible, we're told that God created the world and he put people right in the middle of it and he made it to be good and most of all, he meant us to be in union with him. And when we turned away from him, To do our own thing, to control our own lives, something that the Bible uses a word to describe called sin. Sin entered into the world, and with it, the curse of death. And that is why, scripture tells us, things don't work as they ought to. The Bible tells us that everything else that doesn't work is a symptom of death. And you can't fix death by treating the symptoms, you can't fix death by making more money. You can't fix death by having more relationships. You can't fix death by doing more good things. You can't even fix death by coming to church on a regular basis. You can't fix death by treating symptoms. No, death itself must be defeated. And that is why, brothers and sisters, Easter is the greatest story that humanity has ever heard or ever will hear. For in that story, God makes it loud and clear, I have done something about death. I have done what no human being has been able to do. I have defeated death, and I have laid it in its own grave. I have defeated it at its own game. And in so doing, he sends his son in flesh and blood. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that since we have flesh and blood, since we are human beings with physical bodies, God also sent his son in a physical body so that he would taste death. And that in tasting death, he would destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. And to free those who have been enslaved to fear of death. The resurrection changes everything because in the resurrection we see in Jesus that he has power over death and also its subsequent effects. He has power over death and also its subsequent effects. And yet you might notice that we still die and we still suffer and we still experience tragedy. But in this moment, in the midst of that, for those of us that come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to fear that death any longer. We don't have to live our lives in the, shadow of the, uh, in the valley of the shadow of death because we fear no evil. Maybe I can illustrate that with another story. I have another, another kid. Her name's Abigail. And she's a couple of years older than Jude and one day when she was a toddler, we were in the backyard and she was about 20 feet away and I see that she Reaches down, she picks something off the ground. I didn't see what she picked up, thought it might have been a rock. She turns to me and she says with her sweet little voice, she says, Look, Dad, a bee. And every father ounce of adrenaline in my body just starts to boil as I run towards my precious, innocent daughter, praying to God that she would not be harpooned by this weaponized insect. By the time I get to her I, grab her, I grab her wrist. She's just little and just innocent and sweet, never been hurt at this point in her life. Grab her arm, I'm sweating, I'm hyperventilating, and I'll never forget the words that she said to me in that moment. She said, it's okay, Dad. It's a dead bee. <laughs> I looked at her hand. I said, yep, sure enough. <laughs> and then she said, a dead bee can't sting me. How many of you know a three-year-old can sometimes preach the gospel right at your face? In that moment, I understood what the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when after speaking about how the resurrection changes everything, he breaks into song. Paul, who would later die and say, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? We still die. Until that moment, when Paul would later go on to say, The the last enemy to be destroyed by Jesus is death, and he will. In this moment, we still suffer, we still have hardship, we still die, but we no longer have to live under the fear of that. We can be free. But it gets even better. Jesus doesn't just have power over death, but if he has power over death, that means that he also has power over life. He can have power over your life, he can have power over a life that is suffered. He can have power over a life that has been abandoned. He can have power over a life that has been laid in the gutter. He can have power over a life that feels disillusioned. He has power over a life that has been abused, that has been kicked to the curb, that has been unjustly treated. He has power over a life that feels empty, that feels bitter, that feels angry, that feels enraged. He he has power over a life that feels insignificant or worthless. He has power over a life that feels like it's falling apart this Sunday morning. The book of Colossians tells us that Jesus created the universe and he holds all things together by the word of his power. If he can hold the universe together by the word of his power, he can hold a broken life together by the word of his power too. He doesn't just have power over death, he has power over a life that's falling apart and he can have power over your life if you let him today. Jesus has power over life. This is the consistent narrative of the Bible from beginning to end. This is what you were made for, brothers and sisters. You were not made to live in a spot of failure and depression and discouragement. You were made to live a full life in Jesus Christ. This is your destiny. This is what you were made for. The entire narrative of Scripture screams this from beginning to end. And this is what the Bible testifies to over and over. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I have come so that people might have life. Not just any kind of life, but abundant life. Paul would later say in Romans, just as Jesus was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we might also be able to walk in newness of life. This is what you were made for. Generations later, people would be repeating the story. For example, Jesus mentored a young man by the name of John. John wrote the Gospel of John. John mentored a man by the name of Polycarp, which is an awesome name, by the way. Polycarp. Polycarp mentored a man by the name of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus would write a book, and in that book he would say this. The glory of God is a human being coming fully alive. That which makes God shine most brightly is his ability to take broken, discouraged, hurting people and give them life again. The question is, have you ever experienced that kind of life before? Can you say to me right now, I am fully alive? If there's any doubt in your mind, I want you to consider the invitation of Jesus, the only person who's ever been able to offer such claims. And at the end of this, this message, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Perhaps through baptism, perhaps through prayer. But some of you are thinking, that all sounds great, but isn't Easter a myth? I listen to Bill Maher on HBO, and I read Newsweek, and I saw the discovery, you know, a week-long thing that they did right before Easter, and they say that Easter is a myth. Isn't it, isn't it a myth? There's a lot of other myths surrounding Easter. Osiris and Horus and Mithras and Dionysus and Atticus and so on and so forth. Isn't Easter also a myth? you're right, there's a lot of myths surrounding this time of year. Egyptian myths, Babylonian myths. But what you need to understand, if that's where your mind is today, is that there is a stark difference between a myth that knows that it's untrue and an historically transmitted eyewitness testimony that claims to be actual. Nobody knows the difference between myth and history than the literary critic C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, the late C.S. Lewis, was an atheist. He was an atheist at 15, and his atheism was made more staunch after serving in World War I, where he saw two of his close friends die. He was also one of the greatest literary critics of our day, and his favorite type of literature was mythology. Specifically, fairy tales. You know why C.S. Lewis liked fairy tales? Because they were, as we might like to say, too good to be true. Fairy tales for C.S. Lewis, and for us, anytime we watch Pixar or Disney, they do something to the human heart. They elevate us, they cause us to transcend. The problem is, we know that they're too good to be true, but we love reading them because of what they do to our hearts. C.S. Lewis would later become a Christian for a variety of reasons, but one of my favorites is found in his personal letters to his best friend Arthur Greaves in 1932, in which he would write and explain about how he stumbled upon the gospel writings. And in them he found that he felt the same way that he did when he read a fairy tale. This is too good to be true. And yet it was written as though the authors were claiming that it actually happened. The story that's too good to be true, that actually is true. I could bore you for hours talking about the evidence for why it's true. How the New Testament manuscripts are some of the most highly attested documents in ancient history. How we can actually trust and why we can trust that the New Testament that we have today Goes back faithfully transmitted all the way to the original sources, to Jesus' own words. I could talk for hours about how the eyewitness testimony surrounding the resurrection, hundreds of people, is so thick and deep of a pool that it could stand as a case in the court of law. So deep is this pool of evidence that one scholar by the name of N.T. Wright assembled 800 pages documenting the evidence for the resurrection, and it's right here. It's pretty heavy. But I'm not going to talk about that. I could talk about that at another point because I too, 10 years ago, was a skeptic that was looking for those answers and I found them. I could talk to you about those things at another time. I'm not going to do it today because I have five minutes to see dead hearts come to life. And Jesus speaks not just to the mind, but to the heart. There was an article in the New Yorker some time ago that said that people don't disbelieve because of a lack of evidence, but because of a deep emotional attachment. Scientific evidence will give you understanding, that's why it's good, but it will not change your heart. And I understand this more than just about everybody, because I have frequently struggled with the claims of Jesus Christ. Not because there's no evidence for what he said and what he did, but because of the seriousness of his claims upon my life if what he did is true. How many of you know that Jesus made some outlandish claims about himself? He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed to be the only way to God. And he also extended an invitation to anyone that would listen. That anyone that would believe and have faith in him would experience the eternal kind of life that he offers. Jesus made some outlandish claims and thousands of years later he still extends the same invitation that he has been for years. Surrender your life and follow after Jesus and experience the life that you were meant for. Not a life free from suffering or hardship but a life that is full of the life of God. Jesus asks for a lot he asks for your whole life to be surrendered but you also got to understand today that he gives far more than he'll ever ask far more than you could ever imagine he gives eternal life the life that your restless soul has been thirsting and hungering for god has moved all of history for this moment in 2018 where you would be sitting in some old green chair in a high school theater in Santa Barbara in order to tell you, you are loved by God. He died for your sins and he rose again to bring you to new life. He has done everything needed to change the game for you. The only thing left is what you're going to do about it. The only thing left is your response. I want to... uh, and ask Robert and the rest of the team to come out as we just sing together. And I want to end with that. Uh, What will you do this morning with the claims of Jesus? What will you do with the invitation of Jesus? Romans 10 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. It's as easy as that. But it's not the kind of belief that we think of right now. That, oh, if I just agree with these facts that he rose from the dead, everything changes. The belief that the Bible speaks of is trust. What Jesus is calling you to is a belief that results in you saying, I trust you with my life and I'm going to follow you. And in the first century, Jesus called his disciples to do something pretty radical in that day. Still radical today. He said, follow me repent of your life and be baptized now that word repent isn't a ugly or bad word it just means you were going in this direction and you decide to change your mind and go in the other direction in this case you were controlling your own life and now he calls you to turn around and walk into his arms and one of the greatest and most vivid pictures of that is baptism in water you know why we do that why we've done that for centuries jesus told us to and it's not a saving act, it's not this magical ritual, it's just a symbol. The way that you would give someone a wedding ring, the, the wedding ring isn't the marriage, it's a symbol of the marriage, and so when people go under the water and they come out again, they're giving a picture of what Christ is already doing in their heart, baptizing their heart from death to life. It is essentially the person saying, I see Christ, what you're doing in me, and I just want to say yes so there's some of you out here that i believe are being moved by the power of the holy spirit to follow jesus you've been running your entire life and i'm here this is my only role the only role of my life has been to make it this far to tell some of you it's time to stop running it's time to stop running your search ends with jesus christ The God who sits on his throne, who left his throne, who came to earth, who put on skin, dwelt in our mess and is now in a gross theater with a bunch of people standing face to face with you saying, your search ends with me. I want to extend that invitation to you and say that perhaps some of you are here and you already know I need to follow Jesus. He's the one I've been looking for. I want to ask you to do something bold today. I want to ask for you at some point during worship to get out of your seat and to get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a sign that the search and the run is over. I know the obstacles that are coming into your mind right now. I got on my greatest clothes today. Oh, we got shorts and a shirt for you right now. We got nice towels. They're soft. That tub is about 90 degrees. It is not cold. Don't let silly obstacles keeping you from a face-to-face encounter with the God of your salvation. Isn't that why you came? Isn't that why you came? You didn't come here for a bounce house. Come on. You knew that you were coming. You knew. You might have thought, I'm coming for a croissant. No, you knew deep down inside your heart, I'm coming because I need something deep today. And I'm calling you to stop the running. This is where the run ends. So at any point during music, you can go up to someone on the prayer team. They've got blue shirts and a lanyard and just say, I I think I gave my life to Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to get baptized. And we'll take it from there. Now, others of you are here in this room. You're like, hold on, bro. I I just came to eat some. I just came for the coffee. You're kind of shocking me right now. And I get that. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard of this stuff. And that's okay. Maybe you're struggling with some of the things I'm saying. That's okay, too. Maybe you're wrestling with it. I think church should be the number one place that it's okay to struggle with faith and our walk with God or even our thoughts about God. It's a safe place here. And so for you, maybe this is like way too crazy and bold. That's okay. Maybe for you, you just need to take the struggle straight to God for the first time. And I want to invite you to say, to ask Jesus yourself, Lord, reveal yourself to me. I want to believe. Because perhaps even at this moment, even though you might have come for a bounce house, perhaps even at this moment, Jesus is tugging on your heart. I want to identify that right now and say, that's not me. That's Jesus. Because Jesus loves you. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. We're going to worship right now. For those of you that are believers, you can worship through communion, which is a way of remembering that he died and that he rose again. There's prayer teams. They can pray for you in any way that you need. And of course, if you want to get baptized, come talk to one of them today as well. Let's just spend a few minutes worshiping Jesus, who rose from the dead and through his resurrection has been raising people from the dead ever since.